Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Keith Smith. Dr. Smith became the first dean of Purdue University Global School of Health Sciences in 2007. He later served as vice provost of the university and returned to the School of Health Sciences, where he currently serves as the vice president and dean. Highlights of his tenure include development of groundbreaking hybrid clinical programs, a unique military-only associate's degree, and innovative 3 plus 1 bachelor's degree programs geared towards community college partnerships. So, Dr. Smith, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Delighted to be with you. So can you first start by telling us a bit more about your background and what led to your interest in leadership and organizational change? I have a very eclectic background, uh, graduate degrees in theology and management and education. I'm one of those odd kids in that in elementary school, I was often fascinated by the rise and fall of empires and how leadership played a role in that. And that just kind of continued on as I grew older. So I've always been fascinated by what a huge difference leadership makes and what a huge difference organizations and all of their different flavors, public, private, nonprofit, make in our society, in our world. So it's a, it's a real area of both fascination and passion for me. Yeah, so I mean, I'm curious, how did you wind up getting your start at Purdue Global in 2007? What led to that and what led you to decide to join Purdue? Yeah, I had been a dean at both a, reg- a couple of different residential universities and had dabbled in the online world, had helped develop multiple online courses. But at that time, what is now Purdue University Global was Kaplan University. And they were one of those early leaders in the online space. And I wanted to really go full bore into both the online world because I'd become quite captivated with the efficiencies of it and and the efficacy of it, as well as being desirous of being an institution that was really adult learner focused. As much as I love my colleagues and the students in the traditional university world, my passion was really around adult learners. So that was an opportunity for me to do both and was able to be the the founding dean for the School of Health Science at that point. So can you tell us a little bit about the size and scope of the School of Health Sciences? I mean, the the reason we call this podcast Raise the Line is it's all about how do we increase healthcare capacity? And clearly for a lot of your career, you've been doing just that by leading these health science degree programs and certificate programs. Sure, our school is now about uh, 7,000 students. We've grown last year by 12%, the year before as well. So that's not surprising to me in a number of ways. Once we became a part of the Purdue system, certainly I think the Purdue brand helped us in that regard. But most pointedly, and especially obviously in these last six months, healthcare has really risen, I think, in society's consciousness. And certainly as my generation has grown older, the need for healthcare professionals has done nothing but grow over the years. So I think that was a real key factor in my particular school's growth and part of the larger university's growth. Well, you preempted one of my questions, which was going to be about enrollments, because I know as COVID started becoming a major factor in the U.S., there were a lot of questions, and there still are, around how that's going to impact higher education as a whole. And we'll definitely get into COVID, but I just wanted to get a sense of yours for enrollments and how that has changed this year and how you expect it to change, because 
we've had the president of the AAMC, Dr. David Scordon, on and many other uh, presidents of specialty societies. And they've all said that there's increased interest in their degree programs to address the pandemic and also because they're safe jobs, basically. So do you mind commenting a bit about enrollment trends? Yeah, it's a real fascinating time just from the standpoint of what's gone up and what's gone down. Certainly, I think the online space has gone up by necessity. A lot of residential campuses have seen a a large drop, particularly over the summer and the fall, and now looking at probably the spring semester. We know that community colleges have gone down a lot in this last year. So I think you're going to see some providers, some institutions actually grow as a result of this. Those who are already in the online space, some community colleges and others who were already rapidly deploying online, I think they'll probably be fine. I think some of the residential campuses who are really caught short by all this are going to struggle over this next year. And we were already in a place where higher education was struggling in many ways in terms of there being the thought that at this point, probably in five years, there are not going to be the same amount of institutions as there are even right now. I think the pandemic has just pushed that further along. And so I wanted to talk a bit about your specific programs at Purdue Global and the health sciences. So you've said you have 7,000 students. Do you mind giving us a breakdown of what types of programs they're in, as well as some of the innovative things you've done, like partnering with community colleges to create three plus one bachelor programs and things like that? You bet. We have about 20 programs in the School of Health Sciences, all the way from micro-credentials to certificates, bachelors, and masters. We're actually currently working on a professional doctorate. Part of our differentiation is we are very much into stackability. So everything that you do from a micro-credential, which may be as little as four courses to six courses, can stack into a certificate, which can stack into a bachelor's, which can stack into a master's. We have some accelerated paths. For instance, in our bachelor programs, you can take five master's courses within your bachelor's, get five courses into a 10 or 15 course master's program. So we try to stack those always in what we do. We try to cover a wide variety. Often people think nursing is within a school of health science. Generally, it's not. So we do not have nursing. Uh, We do not have a med school at this point, uh, but we have things ranging from medical assisting to health and wellness coaching to master of public health to health informatics, healthcare administration. So quite a wide variety of clinical programs, administrative programs, and more the public health type of programs. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the same data I am of the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in the U.S. showing that six of the fastest 10 growing professions in the U.S. are in healthcare. Yeah. And you indicated that, you know, you've seen some tailwinds around that over the past few years in terms of enrollments increasing and the aging population. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the programs you've set up specifically to deal with that based on the industry trends and where you'd like your graduates to go and work? One of the programs we did a few years back, for instance, was we were the second university, as far as I can tell, the second university in the United States to have a bachelor's program specifically in health and wellness. Now, we've all seen the rise of health and wellness programs on a corporate level, on an institution level over the last five to seven years. So that for us represented an ability to get on that first wave and being able to foresee what's going to happen. Again, my generation getting older and older, 
much more interest in health across the board in our society and finding ways to really fine tune that from an academic standpoint so that our graduates in that program, for instance, can lead health and wellness programs in a corporation, or they can simply be a health coach that can work for a, you know, a sports club, lots of different opportunities there. But that would probably be a good example. Another one would be we now have a master's in health informatics. Uh, certainly one of the, in a very horrible situation with the pandemic, but one of the things that's been highlighted by the pandemic is the need for useful, relevant, current information that not only clinicians can use, but that the public can help them wrap their heads around what is really going on there. So health informatics is really the field that does that, that ability to gather that data, to analyze it, to be able to present it in a way that makes sense to folks. So those would be a couple of examples of programs we developed around that need in the market, or in some cases, what we foresaw as a need in the market. Those are two excellent examples, and we've definitely been following those trends as well. The public health interest in uh, not only COVID, but all the things surrounding COVID. For example, now we're approaching winter. How will flu season affect it? And do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? All those kind of questions are all we've been talking about over the past six months. Is a vaccine safe to take? How is the vaccine developed? So it's very interesting and makes me glad that we've invested in those things, as, as clearly you all have as well. So let's go back a bit to when COVID started becoming a much bigger factor here in the U.S. You're based north of Seattle. Washington was one of the first states to really get hit hard. Do you mind telling us a bit about your personal experience and then how Purdue Global has adjusted to COVID over the past few months? From a personal impact, uh, share a quick story with you. I was in North Carolina visiting one of our community college partners, and it was in the Raleigh airport. And they head home. That was uh, March 11th. And things were just beginning to pop, as you recall, at that point. And some of the most recent data had come out about how it was being transmitted. So at that point, wearing masks wasn't where it is now. There was an understanding that it really would be a huge preventative measure. Uh, so I'm in the airport in Raleigh and was in an airport bar enjoying a nice double rum and coke before a flight because I hate flying. And the gentleman next to me, a delightful young man who was very lively, very energetic, very social, and about six inches from my face for easily a half an hour. <laughs> and as I'm talking to him and thoroughly enjoying the conversation, in the back of my mind, I'm going, oh, my God, I hope this guy doesn't have COVID because I'm going to get it next. <laughs> got on the plane, got home, and was sick for the next three days. Not because testing was just horrible at that point. I don't know if I ended up having COVID or, or not. Uh, but it was one of those early on, this can so easily go south. And as we saw it, it went horribly, horribly south. So we've learned a lot, I think, in healthcare through this process. I think one of the biggest learning lessons from my standpoint is that healthcare writ large needs to do a much better job of marketing truth. That it's not enough just to put out data, stats, here's the three recommendations, mass, social distance, et cetera. You have to market that because not everybody clearly is in a place where they can just take raw data or raw facts, raw recommendations, and be able to translate that into real application. 
That's a really good point. It all comes down to behavior change, I think. And I think the marketability of the right facts and right data helps people go from pre-contemplation, not even knowing about how COVID is transmitted to then contemplation of, oh, I know how it's transmitted. So wearing a mask will help reduce that transmission. But then getting people from contemplation to like actual action is another tough challenge where we see a lot of drop off. So that's a really funny and interesting story. I hope, you know, I don't know if you hope that you got COVID and that maybe you're immune now or you don't. Uh, But I'd love to hear too about how did you leading this massive organization have to adjust uh, your operations with over 7,000 clinical sites? What did your students do and your faculty? Yeah, in one sense, we've been very fortunate in that we are an online institution and our employee base are virtual. Uh, So my entire team is all over the country. And that's typical of us as universities. So from one standpoint, operationally, it wasn't the massive impact that it has been on my colleagues at a residential campus. However, it obviously impacts our students. We're a pretty nimble institution. So we instituted a number of COVID-based policy changes. And we just put them out there as while we're in this pandemic, we're going to do business differently for our students. An example would be we extended our incomplete by a whole term to give students more time. Uh, In my particular arena with the number of clinical rotations that we do, we worked with the clinical sites and with accreditation agencies, multiple accreditation agencies, to establish alternative clinical abilities, either virtual or uh, some other means to accomplish the same end without physically being in a locale. So we went to great lengths to be able to meet what was the reality of the circumstance. Perfectly, of course not, uh, but we were really pleased that we were able to do a lot for our students and make it possible for them to continue their studies even during this mess. That's wonderful that you guys were able to adjust that. And obviously being a remote company, as far as your employee base, we can relate to that. The biggest challenge I found was a lot of our employees who have normally work from an office, even a co-working space, and they have some distance between work from home. And they also had their children at home for a lot of time. And that was the hardest thing for many of our working parents is it's one thing to have your own home office or go to a co-working space. It's another thing if you don't have childcare. Was that an issue on the employee side that you all faced as well? It most certainly was, and just on a very personal level, before the broadcast started, I should have noticed the artwork of my wallets, my grandchildren. Uh, I have three children, and all three of them are home with their children. So I certainly saw it from a very practical standpoint, the impact on my own family and with our employees as well. So because we are virtual, we do Zoom and Google Hangout and everything else manageable all day long. And it would not be uncommon for these fairly seasoned virtual workers to be a little askance because they weren't used to having their kids running through the background, shooting Nerf guns and, you know, mommy, I need lunch now. And just those normal things that go with my kids are at home. And now what I do with that, Uh, we've tried to just adjust as much as we can to make sure that our folks get taken care of in that way. And we just have an understanding that funny stuff is going to go on in our meetings now and just expect that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's actually been very humanizing. If you remember that BBC interview that went viral last year, maybe two years ago, of the gentleman talking about a very serious subject, I think it was North Korea, and then his two children came in and his wife came in running to get them out. It was, uh, right. that's like the new normal now. So 
We've seen, you know, for example, just focusing on like telemedicine, where reimbursements were enabled for telemedicine through the CARES Act. And now it's very clear it's here to stay. And some of those uh, temporary measures have become long-term measures. What are some of the long-term effects you think COVID will have on both our education system? You already talked about maybe accelerating some of the uh, consolidation or, or demise of some of the higher ed institutions that may not be in the right financial situation, as well as the healthcare system. I'd love to hear your take on the lasting impact. I think it is going to have a significant lasting impact. And interesting, you noted telehealth. We launched a telehealth micro-credential, for instance, in August. We had been intending to do this probably for about a year, but here's the pandemic. Oh my God, we better get something out there. I think that's an indication of what's going to be happening. Telehealth wasn't going to go away. It was already beginning to have inroads into the system. But healthcare, as much as science changes on a moment-by-moment basis, healthcare practice has traditionally changed very slowly. And higher education, vastly more slowly. So I think some of the things we're going to see with this is you'll see now telehealth as it is right now, literally, that will exponentially grow across healthcare. And as clinicians in particular get more used to how that works, I think they'll become much more amenable to that becoming a mainstay. So I I don't think telehealth is going to go away. That's going to now become a new fixture for us. And that's going to do a lot of good for a lot of people, certainly for elderly, certainly for those who are disabled, certainly for the rural communities across the country. That's going to be a huge boon, a definite asset. I think there's some from the educational standpoint, a little biased because obviously I work for an online university, but I've been in the residential world. I think this was a phenomenal wake up call to traditional higher education that you must get in this space. And you need to see this space as something quite different from the traditional classroom setting. I've taught in classroom, I've taught online, I love both, but there's been this fallacy for many years that for those online folks, all they do is try to translate what we do in the classroom to the online world. Not at all true. It's a different venue, it's a different modality, you have to do it differently. And it's equal, if not better, at times than what happens in a residential classroom, depending on the class. So I think we're going to see institutions take a bigger bite of that apple. And we needed that. We need that as an educational system. And I think our country needed that, particularly for adult learners. It's time to be able to embrace that modality. So this is old hat for you all, like having so many faculty and yourself who are very experienced teaching online and knowing the differences. I know a lot of people and a lot of parents especially have been very unimpressed with online education as whether it was K-12 or colleges trying to do it online and go to Zoom University. What are some of the most practical tips or trainings you all have done to make sure that the faculty you hire at Purdue Global are excellent at online education? Like what makes the difference between an effective online course and then a residential course that was slapped onto an online framework? On a real fundamental level, probably the biggest lesson I hope people learn is you just don't try to translate. You have to really look at what are the outcomes you want? What's the best way to get to that outcome? As opposed to, oh, I've got to find a way to emulate a classroom discussion or, oh, I've got to find a way to emulate a classroom exam or a group project. That's not the best route to go. You really start with the old Stephen Covey 
cliche, start with the end in mind. That will help dictate what technology you use, even in an online framework. Another thing, and I alluded to it a moment ago, it depends on the type of discipline and even the type of course. So just personal perspective, not speaking for the university here or for education at large, K through 12 is a much harder environment to do online than at a university level. There are things that are just easier to do if you're working with adults than if you're working for young children. So we have to look at the context, we have to look at the audience, but certainly one of those biggest drivers again is look at what you need to accomplish, not so much how it's been done in other contexts. You have to fine tune those tools. Yeah, that's why the, the stackability and competency-based education that you all have enabled through the online programs, like you just mentioned telehealth, micro-credential, I think are very useful to be able to adjust to your adult learners you know, day-to-day. Yeah. Maybe they only have weekends or nights to study, for example. So I know we're coming up in time. I guess one of my last two questions is, you know, given that we have so many current and future healthcare professionals, people who want to go into healthcare-related careers in our audience at Osmosis, what is your advice to them about meeting the challenges of the COVID moment and beyond? I think despite the pandemic now, as much as any time in our history, is a great time to get into healthcare. So I would not stop that process. If you're thinking about getting into healthcare because of the pandemic, no, go forward, move ahead. There are lots of different ways you can do this. Uh, even in a traditional university setting that's having those challenges at the moment, if that's the route you want to go, go for it. But there are certainly lots of, again, online options for you. So I would say go for it if you're interested in it. Keep in mind, you can not just stack credentials, you can stack careers. You can start at one point and move in either horizontally or vertically, but there are always going to be options for you if you keep on going. And I think the third thing that goes with that is if you're going to get into healthcare, you need to be committed to lifelong learning. You need to be committed to the concept that you will have to constantly be upskilling and most likely up-credentialing, as in if you go into healthcare, for instance, as a medical assistant, that's a certificate level by and large, just know that you're going to need to get a bachelor's and probably make a shift in your career down the road. Understand that if you've got a bachelor's and you're in healthcare administration, probably down the road, you're going to need some kind of master's if you want to get into a management position. If you're a clinician, you have a bachelor's, maybe you were an OT when OT was kind of bachelor oriented. Well, now it's doctorally oriented. You're going to have to constantly upskill, constantly up credential. But that's not bad. That's fun from my perspective. It's enlightening. It's challenging. It keeps you fresh and relevant. And it makes you much more of an effective, caring clinician or administrator or public health educator. That's wonderful advice. Thanks for breaking it down that way. And my last question, is there anything else I should have asked during our time together that you'd like to be able to answer right now? One of the questions that you put forward was about you as an educational organization yourself. What might we want to encourage people to think about? In my now 25 plus years in higher education, if there was anything I would want to get across out there somehow, it's Most students coming into programs do not know how to study, and they're studying the wrong way. We've got to get much better at providing helpful, relevant, 
effective study habits to students. It's not about just working harder. It really is about working smarter. And many of the ways that we've all become accustomed to studying in our educational pathways are not the best way. You do not want to reread that chapter five different times. That's not the route to go. Totally. If people are still reading these days, by the way, a lot of people are well, yeah. just watching videos now, but or listening to podcasts. But Dr. Smith, those are really great pieces of wisdom. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Most welcome. Happy to be with you. You folks take care. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.